Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. If you remember last week, so what we've been doing over the last uh, two weeks, and we'll, we'll continue it on into this week, is we're not focusing strictly on grumbling, as the title of the class is. But what we're doing is we're taking a high view of our personal holiness, and then last week was a high view of God. This week we're going to be going over a right view of man. Uh, we're doing that for multiple reasons. However, one of the biggest reasons is the fact that to really have an understanding of why we're thankful for the things in our lives and why we don't grumble in our lives is to have these ideas down pat. So before we get into this week's information, what I would like to do, I'm going to do this every week, so start doing the homework, but did anybody do the homework? And if we remember last week was a high view of God, I had down five, really six different things that I wanted you guys to do during your quiet time over this last week. So I'm just going to pick a few of these out. If you did it, feel free to answer out. If not, we'll just sit here in awkwardness for a little bit. But so the first one I would like to see is, did anybody in their, in their personal quiet time, did anybody find examples of God's authority within the text that you were studying? We're just going to, what, what's that? Yep. So through the, the book of Matthew, the miracles that are performed, that, that is a very glaring example of God's authority within his creation. What's that? Somebody has to be a second. Well, we'll lump together the next two and say, did anybody find an example of God's sovereignty or God's goodness within their, their personal quiet times? It's not playing, but I can hear the Jeopardy music in the back of my head. Anybody? Doesn't even necessarily need to be in your quiet time. Can you just think of an example of God's sovereignty, authority, or goodness within the Bible as a whole? Mike. Mm -hmm. So uh, the example there was uh, in Acts when Paul basically rebukes a, a high priest and uh, he is corrected on the fact that he tried to rebuke him and he relents and gives the respect respect is due based off the fact that God has given this man the authority within our world 
off of God's sovereignty that he's in the place that he needs to be at that time. That's, that's a really good one. So this week, we're going to be going over a right view of man. This is definitely a change of uh, directions for us. Last week, it was all God's authority, God's goodness, God's sovereignty. These are all really big ideas that really humble us, but in a right, good way. Today, I'm going to try not to make everyone depressed as we go through a right view of man. However, it's not a very happy subject to really dive into as we deal with our own brokenness and our own sin and things like that. Something that I thought of while, while writing this lesson, and last week's lesson, honestly, is that within a church like ours that has kind of the teaching that we have, if you've been in this church for a long time or a short time, you've heard these ideas multiple times. You've heard having a right view of uh, God or high view of God or right view of man. You've heard us talk about the sufficiency of the word, things like that. Like these are things that are repeated. And there's a reason that they're repeated over and over again, because they're so important. We need to make sure we have a right understanding of these things. However, being believers, it's also important for us to understand that we never outgrow just the basic principles of our walk. So being reminded of these things over and over again is right and it's good. It's, it's important for us to continually dive into these things because we'll never outgrow them and we'll never actually reach the bottom of our knowledge of these things. Even once we get to glory, we're never going to reach the bottom of our knowledge of who God is. We'll continually learn it. So it's important for us to go over these things yet again. Before we start, though, I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we'll get into the, the information. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, being a gracious and loving God to us. On, on this Sunday morning, we just thank you for allowing us to wake up, to be able to arrive here safely, be able to worship together. We just pray that this time is a time that is focused on you, and that our lives are lives that are focused on you, Lord, that the, the troubles and the the stressors and everything that we have going on in our lives outside of these doors, I just pray that they, they stay out there so that we can have this time together just to, just to lift up each other, encourage each other, be with one another, and just worship you, Lord, and worship you rightly. It's your that we do pray. Amen. So if you remember last week, I started out with asking you guys a few questions, just throwing them out there. I'm going to start the same way with this one. So having a right view of man... If someone were to ask you what a right view of man was, what would you say? Where would you even start with that subject? And honestly, why would it matter? Why would it matter for us to have a right view of man? The first place that we should start is in, or the first place that we should start in a broken world but actually where we should start is, is what the world was meant to be. So we shouldn't start in a broken world, but what, where the world was meant to be. And what is God's plan leading us towards? God created man with the intention of man living under his righteous rule and perfect joy, worship, and obedience with an unbroken fellowship with him forever. God also created man in his own image and ultimately to declare his own glory. We see this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created 
man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. However, even being created, even God creating us in his, his image, it was to, to declare his glory. And man was actually never treated as an equal to God. Man was never granted ultimate power or authority. So we see that in multiple places. We saw that here in, in 1, 26 and 27, where he's actually telling him, hey, let's create him. So we're already a created being. He already has the authority over us in the simple fact that he created us. But then we also see it as we continue on in that text in 28 through 30. And just so you know, you don't have to write these references down. I try to write them underneath in the handout so you don't have to feverishly write things down. So in uh, Genesis 1, 28 through 30, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seeds and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so, and it was so. So that begs the question. We were given a lot of authority over a lot of things. But did that mean that we had the ultimate authority over those things and before those things? Now, who has the ultimate authority? So even, even before the fall, before everything just got broken, so we're talking Genesis 1 and 2, during that period, we still weren't the ultimate authority. We still were not equal with God. We still had to get our commands. We still had to get our rules. We still had to know how we were going to live our life through the authority of God. Creation of man before the fall was actually a really beautiful thing. Man lived with God, walked with God, communicated with God, was blessed and happy with God. We received his rules with gladness. We executed his commands with joy. We enjoyed his presence with eagerness. We lived in harmony with his creation. Our work was not burdensome. Our relationships were uncomplicated. We were as we were supposed to be. So that begs the even bigger question. What went wrong? What happened? We had all that, and it just, something happened. Genesis 3 happened. So we see as we continue on in Genesis, the Genesis 3, 1 through 7. This is a very familiar story for all of us, but now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it, took of its fruit and ate and said, and she also gave some of her, some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So there's a book, we've got it in the back there, um, called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. And a lot of the outline that I'm giving you today is based off of that book. And he goes over the four parts of the gospel. So you have God, man, Christ, and response. So what we're going over today is obviously man. And in that book, he says, when Adam and Eve bit into the fruit, therefore, they weren't just violating some arbitrary command. They were doing something much sadder and much more serious. They were rejecting God's authority over them and declaring their independence from him. And this disobedience is called sin. We all sin, and that sin separates us from a holy and righteous God. The fall was so serious and devastating that it now defines the lost world in which we live. It's so serious that it's, it's, it condemns those who are not called and do not believe to an eternity in hell. That's the reality of us as fallen man. Creation of man after the fall is a broken thing. Man lives separated from God, walking away from God, having broken communion or communication with God and is cursed and unhappy apart from God. If you remember those things I gave you earlier, these are the antithesis of what that is based off of the fall. We receive his rules with anger. We refuse to execute his commands. We are separated from his presence. We are at constant struggle with his creation. Our work is burdensome. Our relationships are complicated and broken. We are not as we were supposed to be. As I said, this is not going to be a joyful class, and I apologize for that. So within these, these last ones here, what's interesting, I, I try to bring this up in as many classes as I can because I find it just amazing and, and just a beautiful picture of who God is for us. But these last ones here that were within the broken world, so we are constantly at struggle with his creation. Our work is burdensome. Our relationships are complicated and broken. It is not how it was supposed to be. So all of those are directly from the curse. So the things that God cursed from us directly, the things that he specifically states within the curse, are things that he knew us as fallen men and women would instantly flock to to try to find fulfillment within our lives. But him being the sovereign ruling authority and and, in all of his goodness knew that he had to curse those things to take them from us so that we could find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in him alone. So you think about our marriages. He curses our marriages within... Genesis 3. Our marriages are cursed because we try our hardest to find fulfillment in our spouse. Like that's why we constantly feel that struggle between us and our spouse. We're trying to find fulfillment within our spouse, within that relationship. But that relationship is cursed so that we can find that our ultimate fulfillment is going to be in the Lord. And that if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing towards the Lord, that relationship should come alongside us. Same thing with our work, men. This is why there are so many workaholics in our world today. 
There's so many men that just dedicate their lives to their work, not their families, not to the Lord. That's because we try to find ultimate fulfillment in our work. Instead of trying to find ultimate fulfillment in the Lord and the things that we're doing for the Lord, we go to work every day. We work our hardest, which is a great thing. We're commanded to do that. We're supposed to be doing our work as unto the Lord. However, what we're doing is not unto the Lord. Well, often what we're doing is we're doing these things to ourselves to try to just better ourselves, find fulfillment in this job. We're not going to find fulfillment in that job. We're going to find fulfillment in the Lord. And it's the same thing with, I didn't mention it in this list, but within it, what's cursed for the woman, childbearing. So another thing that we, we try to find ultimate fulfillment in, where we often fall flat as parents, is that we're trying to find ultimate fulfillment in our children. We want to raise our children just to be these amazing kids. We want them to be the best athlete they can possibly be. We want them to be the smartest kid in the world. We want them just to do all these great things, which are good in themselves, but apart from doing them for the Lord, they're not going to find fulfillment for anybody, the parent or the child. Does that make sense? Everybody with me so far? I went a little rogue on that. I don't have any of that in my notes, but I just wanted to throw that in there. So the next question that we need to answer is, how serious is sin? And the short answer to that is sin is very serious. It's serious not because of the pain that we feel in it, but it's serious because God says that it's serious. And he holds it to the highest standards. We see in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that tells us is that, one, we've all sinned, but also that our ultimate goal is God's glory. If we've all sinned, then we've fallen short of that glory. We see in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what that tells us is that we've all sinned, and now we have the punishment for what that sin is, and it's ultimately death. Sounds pretty serious to me. Then we have Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we see that sin, we have a laundry list of sins there. This is what sin leads us towards. And the more that we delve into those sins, we don't fight those sins off, the further down that list we just keep going. But just the fact that we do these sins isn't the most devastating thing. The thing is that we see at the end of this Galatians passage is the fact that we sin ultimately means that we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. We're not going to be in his presence for eternity. That's why sin is serious. God has, called, or God has come to us, revealed himself to us, created us, has the authority over us, has his sovereign plan, is good, but our sin separates us from him. That is a right view of man. I wrote down a couple of examples here of uh, how serious sin is. And one of the ones I've got is kind of out of the box. It's the example of Solomon. We see in 1 Kings 3, 13 through 14, that God says, I, I give you also what you have not asked for. So if we go back in the story just a little bit, what we have here is the story of, of God coming to Solomon and asking Solomon what he wants. And Solomon wisely doesn't ask for all the riches in the world, doesn't ask for the biggest empire in the world. He doesn't ask for you know, 
all these things that you would think that a fallen king would ask for. However, what he does ask for is, is wisdom. So God tells him, I give, all, give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And, this is an important part here, and if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God's promises, or God's promise was contingent on what? On Solomon's obedience to him. God holds his holiness and his glory with a very jealous closed fist. There is no compromising to it. What do we know the results of Solomon's life are? Anybody want to throw that out there? Let me ask that in another way. Do we see Solomon obeying his commandments? Do we see him obeying, as we see in here, his statutes, as his father did? We don't. What we ultimately see is that Solomon goes down some dark roads. We see him taking concubines and wives. We see him marrying with, with uh, outside foreign women, which is very forbidden. We see him doing some pretty bad things. And what this does is it's, a, it's a, honestly an example of this Galatians text we read earlier. He just keeps going further and further down this road. What this ultimately does is not only does God pull his, his blessing away from him, but it ultimately divides the entire kingdom. We see a result of his sin being that the kingdom's divided. And if we just keep taking that road, keep going down that road, we ultimately see Babylon taking over the kingdom, them being in exile for how many years? I can't remember. 70? 70 years. We see him being in exile for 70 years. We see horrible things not only happening to Solomon, but that sin just radiates out to his entire people. That's how serious sin is. Another example that I've written down here is uh, the example of Jesus. Jesus in the, in the garden, there was, uh, there's only been one perfect man, and that was Christ. I think we all know that. He never sinned, but knew he would have to take on the sins of all the fallen men. The anguish he felt at the reality of man's sin and separation from God is written in Luke 22. We see Luke 22, 39 through 44. And he came out and went, uh, or he, and he came out and went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the, to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And sweats became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The anguish of the knowledge of the task that Christ was about to complete was so strong that Christ himself began to sweat blood. He prayed that there would be some other way that this task could be done, but ultimately relented to his father's will. He was still obedient. What does that tell us about sin? 
Is it something just we can deal with? We can live with that. We, we'll, we'll deal with that down the road. It's not that bad. It's just a little white lie. I'm just doing what everyone else is doing. Is that how should we, we should view sin from this text? Is that how Christ viewed sin? No, it's not. Sin is deep. It's bad. It's serious beyond what we want, what we want to understand. So how do we view sin? We just, we kind of, honestly, I mean, I'll speak from my heart. It's often not viewed as that big of a deal. We often act like our sin is not that big or that there are that they are such a common thing that there is nothing that we can really do about them. However, we are called time and again to deal with our sin. There is no such thing as a little white lie or a small sin. Sin is sin. We have it in our minds that we can rank our sins. We can, you know, well, I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm just looking at pornography. Or I'm not, you know, my little white lie isn't that big of a deal. Or... I don't know. I'm filling out my expense report. My company's not going to miss this $5. Like we view these little things as not that big of a deal. But what we need to get in our mind is that sin is sin. That's sin is sin. So what? What can we do? What can we as redeemed believers in Christ do about our sins? These next things, I'll be up front. These next Actually, to the end of this class, I'm speaking to believers. If you're not a believer or you're confused by this, please don't, don't leave this class. Don't leave this church without talking to somebody here. Talk to one of the elders. Talk, I mean, there's a lot of people in here that would love to walk you down the road of salvation. So I'm speaking to believers with this next text. If you're confused by this, come talk to me. If you are kind of up in the air about whether or not you're even saved, come talk to me. I would love to have that conversation with you. So that little caveat before we get started. So what, is, what do we as redeemed believers in Christ do about our sin? First thing is that we seek God. We see in Psalms 119.10, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. It is often that we draw, it is often that the draw of man is to question the reality and the truth of the existence of God. What we see in this verse is, is not the questioning of God's existence. It is the truth that he is there and that he does exist and that, ex- and that existence is the foundation of all things. Due to this, we seek after him. Not with fleeting joys of a broken world, but with the understanding that he's there. Really, the understanding of our last class. He has the authority over us. He's sovereign. He's good. We seek after him because we're told to seek after him. We see in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We must have such a deep and constant focus on God that we can speak these words without hesitation. That means all things are weighed by the standard of God and his holiness. And to know God and his holiness, we must always be seeking him. So the question is, do you, do you seek God daily? Actually, let's, 
walk that back a little bit. Do you, do you seek God with every breath that you take? We don't just have that check the box, okay, I did my quiet time in the morning, I did my prayer, I'm, I'm good for the day. It's, it's a constant thing in our mind. Every decision we make, every thought that we have, we need to hold captive to who God is. Yeah, I know this is a heavy thing. I know this is a lot of weight being put on your shoulders. I've been dealing with this all week as I'm, I'm writing this lesson, seeing how much I fail at this as I'm writing this lesson. However, this is the reality of what we've been called to. The second thing that we do is we treasure God's word. In his book, Maturity, by Sinclair Ferguson, we see Sinclair writes, we need to learn that God's word does not, or does God's, let me start that over because that, that whole sentence has to go together. It doesn't make sense. So we see Sinclair Ferguson say, we need to learn that God's word does God's work in God's people by the power of God's spirit. We need to get away from the ideal idea that the Bible tells us what to do and then leave and then leaves us to our own devices to accomplish it. We are transformed by the Spirit's indwelling. He is there to help us understand the world and our lives through the discernment of the Holy Spirit. And one, one way the Spirit does that is through the study of the Word. We often get into this idea that, even as believers, we fall into this wrong idea that like the Bible... Is, is hard to understand. And there are texts in there that are hard to understand. I mean, that's undeniable. There are, I mean, go ahead and read the book of Revelations and tell me that that's, well, you've got that covered. Okay. All right. There's, there are hard things within the Bible to understand. However, I haven't mentioned them yet this class. I'm going to go ahead and mention them. One of my favorite sayings by Alistair Begg is, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. God has written his word so that we can understand the main things, and they're very plain. If you look at how the Bible itself was written, there was two forms of uh, Greek. You had the high, right, high Greek, and then you had the common Greek. I always get Greek and Latin confused in my mind. So you have the high Greek, and you have the, the common Greek. So the high Greek was the one that would be used in like governmental life or just like education, things like that, like what you would expect, like more educated people to be speaking. So a lot of like the official documents would have been written in high Greek because they would have been kind of on this upper level of, of uh, what you would expect. Then you had the common Greek, which is we would have went into the marketplace and just talked to people. That's what you would have heard, not the educated people talking to one another. They wouldn't be talking in high Greek. They'd be talking in common Greek. So softball question to you all. Which one of those do you think the Bible was written in? It was written in the common Greek. It was written so that the common person in the marketplace could read it and understand it. There's a lot of it that we have to go through with the, uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's why a lot of people, before they come to Christ, they'll read the Bible and they'll be really confused by it. But they understand that it's important. They can feel that tug that God's calling them. But it's not until after they come to Christ and they're indwelled with the Holy Spirit that they'll go back over that text and they'll read over and like, that makes sense. Even us as believers will read things and just be like, I, I have no idea. I have no idea what that says. 
we can come back to it a year or two later and go, oh, that makes perfect sense now. Like, just through that understanding, that help of the Holy Spirit nudging us along, we can understand. We see in Psalms 119.11, I have stored up your words in my heart that I might not sin against you. We often view life as how can, or how can I do what God's word says? When in reality, we need, to have so heavy, we need to be so heavily saturated with God's word that it influences and its truth is, to, is what we breathe in our very lungs. It's just there and we just live it out. Being so saturated with the word is so important to us that as we read it, this is why we constantly, the elders of the church constantly are just harping on having that daily quiet time. It's important. It needs to be a part of your life that whenever you miss it, you feel it in your day. But one of the reasons that we do that is that it needs to be something that's so into you. It's so constantly being done. You're going to it so often that it just becomes the air that you breathe. Instead of having to really fight hard to have your mind constantly focused on the Lord, it's just something that naturally comes to you. It's not an easy thing. It's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, I've been doing it for a while. It's not something that even right now comes naturally to me. I still feel that sin nature creeping up in me to where I'll often, you're at that fork in the road, I'll often take that very wrong fork in how I want to react to things instead of knowing what the Word says and taking that fork. But it's important for us to constantly be digesting the Word. The final thing I have written down there in your notes for how, um, how what do we do about our sin is that we rejoice in God's ways. The Lord has done mighty things and done them for his glory. It's good and right that we remember those things and we dwell on them to remind us that he is able and will forgive us of our sins. But more than that, he is able and will strengthen us to avoid sins that we feel so tempted to do. So if you can think back, I'm going to throw this out to everybody. So there's many examples of people doing this in the Word. Can anyone think of an example of someone reflecting back on the good things that God has done? Mike. Mm-hmm. A lot. Of, I mean, and Paul does that a lot in a lot of his put-offs and put-ons. That he'll break those up by saying, "And such were you, but through," and then goes into these lists of great things that God has changed in your life. Anybody else? Jacob. Jacob. So Jacob, going over everything that's happened in his life up to that point of being reunited with Esau. Um, one that I thought of, our, our small group just went over Habakkuk. And then Habakkuk, towards the end of Habakkuk, you have this just back and forth between God and Habakkuk. 
And eventually, we see Habakkuk reflecting on the things that God has done up to this point, even with the knowledge that God's about to destroy everything, their entire lives, to the point of not even being able to grow crops, realizing that everything was going to be devastated, and that he's just got to stand on this wall and wait for it to happen. Like, there's just nothing that can stop this because God's ordained that it's going to happen. And what he does is he reflects back on everything that God has done for his people up to this point, and then just sits and dwells on that and just takes joy in that, knowing what's about to come. But I also have down here uh, one of my favorite texts. Uh, probably it came from one of the darker times in my life. It's uh, in Job. Leave it to me that, like, in a dark time, I, I run to Job to find joy. But in Job, we see Job 38, 4 through 7. And this is God's response to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determines, who determined its measures? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk and who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So what we have here, I mean, the book of Job is not a happy book, and you just have Job really just getting smacked in the face one chapter after another, after another, after another, and finally God comes to Job and answers Job. You've been waiting, like it's just, you've been waiting for this moment through the entire book of Job. And what you expect is God just to give him a big hug. Like, it's going to be all right. This is what's been going on. This is why this has been happening. That's not what God does. What God does is take him back to who God is. He reminds him, I am God. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you? How do you, do you even have an understanding of how it's measured? Do you have an understanding of any of the things that I have done? That's how God chooses to comfort Job. That's the same way that we fight our sin, is to reflect on God and his goodness. We don't fight our sin in ourselves. We fight our sins through the work of the Holy Spirit. We're fallen and sinful men. We're brought out of that sin through the power of the Holy Spirit for God's glory. So through that, what we do is we reflect back on the good things that God has done to give us that strength to keep on going, to take hope and trust in the God that did all these things has also promised that he's going to do these things for us. There's a band, I mentioned them already once in this class, but there's a band called uh, Ghost Ship, and they have a song called Jude Doxology. What they do is they take the book of Jude and they go through Jude and just put it to, to words or to lyric or to song. But I'm just going to read some of those to you. And what they, what they do is they do exactly what we're talking about here. They reflect back on the good things that God has done for the nation of Israel. It says, remember Jesus brought you out of Egypt. Remember he has sought you as his people. Remember he has saved you from your sin. Remember, remember him. Remember, Jesus brought you through the Red Sea. Remember mighty miracles that you have seen. Remember, you were slaves and now are free. Remember that he is king. To the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the glory, honor, power, and dominion, before all time and now and evermore, remember Jesus raised above the heavens, He's coming. He is coming with his kingdom. Do not forget he is seated on the throne. Remember what he has done 
And then it goes back to the doxology, the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the glory, honor, power, and dominion before all time and now and evermore. Before all time, now, and evermore. That's the God that we serve. The only way that we can fight our sin is through a right understanding of who God is. That's what we do. We fight our sins daily through the work of the Holy Spirit. We continually focus and seek after God. We're continually in our Bibles. We're continually in prayer. And we rejoice in God's ways. They're often confusing to us. That's because we're not sovereign. They're often concerning to us. That's because we're not the authority. But what we need to do is focus on his goodness. Because he is a good God. Even in our pain, even in our trials, even in our struggles, he is a good God. And he's a God that we can rely on for his promises. 